Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Sherlock, Sherlisten, the podcast that takes a pop at culture. Oh, extra sh on the shore there, Benjamin. It must be because the nights are getting darker, the Christmas tree is up and the goose is getting fat. And I've told you, stop calling me the goose, you son of a bitch. But sure, look, Benjamin, we don't have time to get into that because we've got loads of festive stuff to look at, including a new trailer that I thought was AI generated for the TV series Fallout. Kong and Godzilla have the ultimate team-up of all time. Oh, it's absolute bullshit, Michael. <laughs> Furiosa is back. Everyone's favourite character that everyone wanted to know the Secret Origins know she's back. And this time her eyes are further apart. And we've got a trailer for The Boys Season 4. Would you believe? Sure, listen, Michael. If that wasn't enough, and it really isn't for this festive season, we've decided to kick off Christmas by taking a look at all things Santa Claus. Mainly evil Santa Claus. Oh, yeah. Where he came from, why we don't trust him, and why everybody is, deep down, scared of him. I'm not afraid of Santa Benjamin. Well, maybe you're terrified of the late-stage capitalism and consumerist excess that he represents. Exciting things that we all seem to be terrified of, Michael, were yet again inundated with another nuclear apocalypse. Yeah, how did you pronounce that there? I think I said nuclear. That's not how you say it. Okay, very good. Benjamin, I'll tell you what, though. One of the most exciting things about this trailer is if you aren't up to date with the game, you're not going to have a clue what's going on in the trailer for Fallout. That's exactly what happened to me, Michael. I've never played Fallout and I hadn't a bog's notion what was going on in this particular trailer. Very good. Well, that explains a lot then, because this trailer, and Ben, our good friend, my good friend and yours, Sean, sent us these images a week ago or two weeks ago, and I have been saying since then, and I genuinely believe meant it, but I thought everyone thought I was joking. I thought the stills that were released from this trailer a couple of weeks ago, or days, I can't remember, I've lost track of time in the excitement of December, I thought they were AI. But they're not AI, they're real. They're absolutely real, Michael. They're not a real trailer for real people. And all this trailer is, is this, this trailer said, this trailer might as well say, hey, hey there, hi. We heard you guys liked Fallout. Is that true? And then all the fans went, yes, yes, we do like Fallout. And then they said, well, cop a load of this then. And then they just, they just showed them a load of Fallout. And it seems to be one of the favourite Fallouts. I think it's an adaptation of... Fallout New Vegas. Is it? Isn't it? No, I'm asking you, is it? Well, I mean, it's got deserts and mutants and more mutants. And that's very Fallout New Vegas. Or maybe that's that's all Fallouts, is it? I, I don't know. Like I said, I haven't played it. Oh, yeah, I don't know if it is. It's just Fallout. Because it looks like Fallout 4. It looks like Fallout New Vegas. It, it looks like Fallout. So, Benjamin, who's the actress in this? I, I recognise her, but I don't know who it is. That is none other than Ella Purnell. And what was she in? Well, the thing at the top of her listing is Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, I think, at the very top. Yeah, go on. Are you looking at the Imdebe? She was in loads of stuff. She was Teen Jackie on Yellow Jackets. Oh, that's what it was. Teen Jackie. That's who she was. She was in Army of the Dead. Oh, yeah. And she also voices Jinx on the very popular Arcane on Netflix. Oh, so she did. So, Benjamin, the world of Fallout is... In the world of Fallout, there was a big old nuclear war in the 1950s. And some of humanity survived by going into vaults. You had to go into a 
Oh, because you didn't want to get blasted with the radiation. Exactly, because if you're in the vault, you don't get irradiated. But some other weird shit might happen, because it turns out all the vaults were a bit wrong. Probably cannibalism. A bit sciencey, a bit, a bit sciencey, a bit experimenty. Or a bit of cannibalism. Not great. Not great. So then, after I think it's five hundred years, the vaults open back up, and there's an irradiated wasteland, and the radiation's now gone, but the Earth has been twisted into this weird new world. Is it five hundred years, Michael? That seems a long time. I thought it was five hundred years. No, I'm not saying you're wrong. Just saying five hundred years. What a length of time. Don't put it in a clip, Ben. Don't put it in a short unless you double check and it's right. Because I'm not having the internet come for me. I might just clip it, you know, and then I'll slap an asterisk over it and just stick it there. Yeah, that's what I'll do. I'll correct you silently with a text. Oh, yeah. Oh, people love that. People love being corrected. Yeah, that, that's not how you pronounce that word either. We're going, we're going we're delving real deep down into your vocabulary this week, Ben. Where are you supposed to say asterisk? Yeah, that's it. That's it exactly. Just pop that up on the internet. Let the internet decide if that, if asterisk is the right way to pronounce that word. Ben, this is faithful is the word I would use for this trailer. Because if there's one thing we hate here at the podcast, Michael, it's infidelity. Oh my God, it's one of the best ways to upset the fans. But the fans, I think, are going to like this. Because the mutants look like mutants. The Fallout robot suits look like Fallout robot suits. The various types of irradiated, weird, gross grobblies that live in the wasteland look like the various types of irradiated, weird, gross grobblies that live in the wasteland. Very well done there. That was impressive. Thank you very much. And um, yeah, everything looks right. I can't imagine there's a Fallout fan who hasn't looked at this and gone, yeah, that's Fallout. This does seem to have taken a leaf out of the Netflix One Piece book and gone for a very faithful adaptation over excellent CGI or flashy CGI because there were a couple of times in this trailer where I went, oh, Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's the best computer-generated work we could be seeing. Yeah, who has time to do CGI properly these days What with all the strikes and all the marvels? It doesn't matter as long as it's a bit faithful. There seems to be quite a comedic tone in the trailer and I wasn't really sure if that's part of the Fallout game. Like, is that the tone it goes for? Is it a a funny, dark humour kind of game? I wasn't really sure. The game's tone is all over the place. But yes, the game often does play the grotesque for the absurd and the comedic. Looking at the cast, there are quite a few comedic actors that are that are doing a turn. Um, Michael, Chris Parnell is there at the beginning. He plays some kind of overseer. Overall, the cast is pretty amazing. Um, you've got some big, big, big names attached to this. And it's it's quite impressive. Walt Goggins is there. And he's playing someone called the Ghoul. I don't know who the Ghoul is, Ben. I'm not that deep into Fallout lore, but I think he's the guy with no nose. Oh, he's got a very weird look to him. He's some sort of gunslinging, wasteland irradiated ghoul man. I don't, I couldn't tell you, I couldn't tell you if he is a Fallout lore character or if he's a character for this. But there are lots of people who look like him in the world of Fallout. And then there's Kyle McLaughlin who's playing Overseer Hank. From bloody Twin Peaks. The guy who played Mr. Hyde in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. season 3 to 6. That's the guy, yeah. It's got a good cast. It's got a good cast. It's got a doggo. Everyone loves having a doggo. And the doggo in the Fallout series is very important, Ben. The doggo in the dog series is usually called Dog Meat and is one of the most important characters. Oh, I don't know if I like the sound of dog meat. No, it's just because the world that they live in is is awful. Dogmeat is a character from Fallout 4, I think. 
and he's a he's a companion that you can get. Well, it's nice that you can have company in the nuclear wasteland. Yeah, it's good to have companions, but very sadly, Benjamin Dogmeat is not an essential NPC. Oh, I don't like the sound of that either. He can be killed. Oh, boo! The very bad stuff. Cause it's a bit of drama, but don't worry, Benjamin. There's a there's a perk you can get called puppies, in which uh, if Dogmeat dies, he comes back. Does he come back as a puppy? No, Benjamin. The technology is not there for simulated dog growth and Fallout Three or Four Four. Well, either way, Michael, it doesn't sound like anything I want to be emotionally subjected to. Speaking of things that I don't want to be emotionally subjected to, we got a trailer this week, Michael, for Kong and Godzilla versus Caesar from Planet of the Apes. <laughs> yes, I was halfway through this trailer and I said to myself, this is what I said to myself, Ben, I said to myself, is this a trailer for Planet of the Apes or King Kong? I'm confused. Michael, this series has strayed so far from the gritty, realistic tone that they tried to set all those years ago. Do you remember when we used to have to take Godzilla seriously? Do you remember all that big grey cinematography and and high stakes and all oh, the humanity kind of stuff we've gone and now we've got this bizarre, I don't know, it's almost like a kids movie version of the same monsters from the past. Remember that Remember that first Godzilla, Ben? Remember that first Godzilla where you didn't see Godzilla really for the first hour and it had bloody... Breaking Bad in it. And that man said, let them fight. Remember? Oh, gas stuff compared to this. I I was watching this and I watch, I was watching this trailer on my own. And often when I'm on my own, Ben, I'm less affected by media. But I was watching this on my own and I laughed out loud at this trailer. I laughed out loud on my own. It made me feel mentally unwell. And I'll tell you the bit I laughed out loud at. I laughed out loud at the bit where Godzilla crawls his way up out from under some rubble, starts watch, starts running towards the camera. Kong appears behind his shoulder, wielding a power glove, and the two of them run awkwardly towards whoever the villain is. And you know what I said to myself? I said, "That's it. Cinema's finished. We've 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 finished cinema. There's no need for any more." We've hit the the peak of cultural expression. It just looks so ridiculous. Godzilla can't run like that. He's not built to do it. He's huge. He can. He can if he wants, Ben. If he's in a hurry. If he's in a hurry, he can run. Ah, yes. He gets some kind of adrenal spike. That means he can just break the laws of physics, is it? Is that what it is? Oh, very good. Yeah, well, no. But, I, I mean, I appreciate that you've tried to throw in some scientific-sounding words. That, I appreciated that. Yeah, that was good. Yes. Not unlike the film Godzilla vs. Kong. <laughs> <laughs> he just runs... Th- the two of them are running towards the screen together, Ben. Like the rock and Vin Diesel. Yeah, exactly. I think you've you've hit the nail on the head there, really. This is kind of the... Fast and furiousification of all films where, you know, we always come back to that Rick and Morty scene where it's like they're two brothers and they have a strong bond. And it seems to be the case with all these big action franchises that at some point you're going to have to have enemies become friends, become enemies again, then become bros for life. And, you know, there's always a a begrudging situation that brings them together to to tackle it. They're not bros. They are bros now, though. It's just Hobbs and Shaw for everything. Big monsters, Hobbs and Shaw. You know, it it doesn't matter. It is the fast and furious effect, I think we'll call it. The other thing is, though, like, Kong himself has just been stretched out of all proportion now to make him match Godzilla. Because when they're running 
forward, all you see is them almost the exact same size, which doesn't make any sense. He just keeps growing. He just keeps getting bigger. One of my favourite things about it was uh, Kong won't be able to handle this alone. And then the lady says, he won't be alone. And then Godzilla unfreezes. Why was Godzilla frozen? I don't know. More to the point, why does Godzilla have neon pink spines? When did he get those? I can't remember. I can't remember. I can't remember him getting pink spines. I watched this and honestly felt like I was watching uh, Lava Girl and Shark Boy from Robert Rodriguez at one point. There were so many bright colours and kind of spy kid motifs running through this entire thing. I, I could not get over it it's like watching those tiktoks where one half of the screen is the actual content and the other half of the screen is like kinetic sand or melting sand to keep the attention of gen z viewers maybe that's what they're doing i i really don't know but it's just it's lost all seriousness for me one of the one of the really bizarre things for me is i've been i wanted to watch godzilla minus one this week but time got away from me a little bit but um the other thing that I've been watching recently is the fucking deadly serious delve into the backstory of this universe, Monarch Legacy of Monsters with Kurt Russell. How in God's name are these two things in the same universe? They're the, they're the same franchise. I'm just waiting for Kurt Russell to say, don't worry, bros. And then Kurt Russell, miraculously the same size also, runs towards the screen with Godzilla and Kong. What I can't stand about it is the weird, like, orangutan villain that we see sitting on the throne. I know in the teaser material we originally saw for this that it was, we all thought it was going to be Kong, but now apparently it's going to be the villain. And I'd put money on the fact that it's probably going to be voiced by Andy Serkis. (laughs) Yeah, more Kongs. What I really want is a whole deep dive into the scientist who takes a look at Kong and the threats facing the planet and goes, hmm, hmm, one day... Kong won't be able to handle this and we'll have to find a way to help him out. And his solution to this is not to maybe come up with a training regimen for Kong or augment him through medicine or science or something like that. No, his first thought is giant mecha power glove. That'll do it. I imagine there's going to be something like he broke his arm fighting Mecha Godzilla or something. They've even gone ahead and said, put in a little Kong for merchandising. That has 100% been put in for the express purpose of selling as many toys as humanly possible. Get Jason Statham in, he'll voice it. But Ben, he wouldn't be little, would he? He'd be fucking enormous. He'd be the size of a small house or a big house. But look, I've never been more excited. I can't lie. I I was so excited about the two bros running towards the screen. All I want is for more now. All I can hope is that they start teaming up with other inexplicable properties. I would love Fast and Furious 15, the Godzilla-verse, where Vin Diesel gets grown up to that size by a magic ray and also has to team up with them. That would be incredible. Feckin' great stuff altogether. Anyway, Benjamin... Speaking of uh, horrific monstrosities, George Miller is making a new... Uh, from the mastermind George Miller, Benjamin, George Miller's 90s, and he, so I think he had almost nothing to do with this. <laughs> <laughs> do you think he says... Do you think he makes the the production crew refer to him as mastermind George Miller? Without shadow of a doubt. Mm, and then says, I made Babe, you know. I'm George Mastermind Miller of Babe fame. I think he's Australian, isn't he? I'm George Mastermind Miller Babe fame. Not terrible. Anyway, Ben. It's the bloody origin story 
of Furiosa. And it appears to commit the cardinal crime of origin stories, in my opinion. That someone's life, up to the point at which we meet them and they have an incredible adventure, has been much more interesting than that incredible adventure. Like, oh, so that time when we saw you in that other movie, that was just like a... You probably would barely even mention that in your autobiography. Yes, the entire famous reboot of a major character is just a footnote to you as a, as an individual. Rebooted? Was it rebooted? But look, we won't get into that. How old is that movie? Is it 10 years old now? I'm not actually sure. Uh, I'll look it up there. You spin your wheels. No, it's, it might even be a little bit more, I suppose. Um yeah, it's a, it's a weird one where Charlize Theron, I suppose, has aged out of a prequel. Yeah, but more than that, like the the movie itself has aged out of its interest. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, this came out in twenty fifteen. I looked it up there, and you know, okay, only eight years ago. Is that all? It's only eight years, but it's eight years with a lot in between. Oh yeah, yeah, a lot of shit has happened, and I'm not sure the the drive or the the want or the interest is there for these characters you know especially if you're going to replace Charlize Theron I think people I think it's made another cardinal sin in that it's forgetting that people don't actually care all that much about Furiosa as a character because there's no great lore to that character she's not a legacy she doesn't have long standing and you know it's really Charlize Theron and her portrayal of her that drew people in yeah it's a it's a bloody well weird one. Okay. Anyway, it's not Charlie's Theron anymore. It's Anya Taylor Joy. And none other than Primo Australian export, Chris Hemsworth. Chris Hemsworth. Chris Hemsworth, for the first time in his career, getting to play a creepy, ugly guy. Which they've achieved not through, as some might expect, CGI, mm. but by use of a huge prosthetic nose. And this might prove to be something of a controversial choice because. Right now, Hollywood is in the grips of a prosthetic nose scandal. Is it? Yeah, so some of this has come about uh, from a film that isn't quite in our wheelhouse, so we haven't covered before, but uh, Bradley Cooper has just been involved in producing and directing, I think, a film on the life of American composer Leonard Bernstein. Okay, go on. And in that film, um, he has opted to wear an absolutely massive prosthetic nose. (laughs) Does Leonard Bernstein have a huge nose? No, he did not have a huge nose. Is he alive? No, he's dead. Okay. So Bradley Cooper has uh, received a little bit of criticism for being anti-Semitic in over-representing the size of a prominent Jewish man's nose. Oh, he's a Jewish fella, is he? Absolutely a Jewish fella. Put a Big, huge prosthetic on. He got the, in the same trouble with raccoons, though, as well, didn't he, when he was doing uh, Rocket Raccoon? Yes, there were pickets and calls from the raccoon community to boycott Guardians of the Galaxy, if I recall correctly. <laughs> <laughs> didn't Zoe Saldana get a lot of grief for a prosthetic nose as well? Was it in... Was was she Tina Turner? Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's interesting. It's, um, it's a question of, like... I, hold on, I need, I, I'm, I'm formulating my thoughts here at the same time that we're, we're talking about it. Two questions that are coming to me is, question one, is it a problem really? Like, is it actually insensitive? And question two, why is it the thing to do? Like, is it because the nose is the easiest way to change the look 
of someone's face. Oh, it absolutely is, without shadow of a doubt. But I think the the big insult here is to people that are going to look at how they've. Uh, there are bound to be interviews where people ask Chris Hemsworth, you know, oh, you know, how did you feel giving up your looks for this role? That's a massive insult to anyone with a slightly larger than average nose. That oh yeah, you're you're absolutely hideous once you uh, once you have that slightly bigger nose. You know, how did you how did you handle that trauma, Chris? That's you. You've uglied. We've uglied you up, Chris, with your big shrunker. Now, Ben, when you say um, when you say the biggest insult to normal people, do you mean your people? Yes, yes, I do. By your people, you mean my people, which are people with large noses, because for anyone who can't see me, and none of you can, because this is an audio medium, uh, I have a rather large schnoz. Big old shrown. On Sean Vore, we call him in, in that's, uh, that's his Irish name. Chris Hemsworth isn't playing Immortan Joe, is he? Is he playing young Immortan Joe? I don't think so. There's, there's one or two scenes there where he's squaring off against someone who looks an awful lot like the Immortan Joe that we saw in Mad Max Fury Road. So I don't, I don't reckon that's, um, that's going to be the case. I think he probably plays someone who helps Immortan Joe organize his, death races or maybe he's someone that Immortan Joe murders by the end of the film like I I think there's probably a reason that we don't see him in Mad Max Fury Road and not because this is a half-baked prequel that uh, we threw together at the last minute Mm, maybe but again my big issue with this is that everything seems bigger everything seems bigger more spectacular grander and that is doesn't make sense in a prequel and I'm against prequels it feels it feels like such a budget concept, but then it looks expensive. It looks good. Well, I'd imagine you need a lot of money for that prosthetics budget because there's prosthetic noses and then there's Furiosa's prosthetic hand. and Prosthetic arms. We'll probably stick a few more prosthetics in there just to justify the uh, large bill that this racks up. Yeah, look, prequels don't do great. You're swapping out actors, especially because, as we said, Charlize Theron has aged out um, and that's that's just the way the cookie crumbles I don't think I care about it much to be honest um, which is is probably standard great fabulous look we'll probably go see it but I can't say I'm super excited because at the end of the day no matter how many Anya Taylor Joys it's got it's still a prequel oh, I bloody can't abide I can't abide I can't abide by prequels Ben I just can't abide by them You've really come across there as a as a Dublin mammy, you know. I I can't be doing prequels, Mary, you know yourself. I can't do them. I've no time for them. I just can't be at them prequels, they're awful. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I can't, I can't, I can't. Do you know what puts me off a franchise like nothing else? Prequel. A prequel. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I do think it's awful cheeky that Anya Taylor Sorrow young one coming in replacing our Charlize. Charlize was great, and they're just coming in there, just replacing her the cheek. Very cheek, yeah, yeah, yeah. Doesn't even look like Charlize Theron. Anyway, moving swiftly on from what promises to be a debacle of a prequel, do you know what's coming that's a sequel, and it'll probably be very, very good, Michael? What? 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 Sure, it's only The Boys Season 4 that we just got a trailer dropped for. The Boys is great, isn't it? It's just been consistently good. And it turns out, Benjamin, that everyone's favourite season four injection of Hot Man is coming. Big Zaddy Morgan is making his appearance. Jeffy D, as the boys call him. 
Jeffrey Dean Morgan is finally in the boys. Like every sci-fi or fantasy season, you're basically just on the edge of your seat going, when are they going to add Jeffrey Dean Morgan? Someone with an unquestionable amount of charisma to maybe swing around a baseball bat at some walkers. Jeffrey Dean Morgan. I need someone to play the father to one of the most iconic superheroes of all time, but I want him to be a bit of a prick that wields guns as opposed to his bat-ear-toting son who doesn't touch the stuff. Jeffrey Dean Morgan. Come here to me. I need someone to play an absolute bastard of a character in a seminal comic book about a series of classic Golden Age superheroes that aren't all they seem. Get me Jeffrey Dean Morgan. He's just non-stop, Benjamin. Who's he playing? So, Michael, there's there's quite a few possibilities for this one. As we've said many times before, The Boys is based on a comic book. Don't read it. Never read it. Awful stuff. In the comic books, Mallory is a character who founded The Boys. He's a grizzled old war veteran, and he is the man who started up the Wetwork team that is The Boys. Now, we've already seen that... Grace Mallory is the character that acts as his stand-in in the series. She is the woman responsible for the boys. Mm. Had it not been for that female Mallory, I would have said that he undoubtedly would have played that character from the comics. Don't read it, it's rubbish. So bad, don't touch them. But as we've established, tons of charisma, oodles, so you get Jeffrey Dean Morgan in to go toe-to-toe with other big charismatic presences on the screen. And obviously one of the biggest ones in The Boys is none other than uh, Billy Butcher uh, or Carl Urban. And so I'd imagine he's either going to be a counterpart in another agency Mm. or he's just going to be a general badass they bring in to kick some tush. Yeah, that's what you do with Jeffrey Dean Morgan. Benjamin, because this has diverged very far now from the comics. And thank God for that. Oh, says you. They're just awful violent, Mary. You could be reading them now. I'd be up in a tizzy if I had a read of them. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't be able to get to sleep. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I need me sleep, Mary. It's very important to me. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't read them myself now. Well, those are just a few of the reasons that uh, Josephine from the Flats doesn't read the boys. You want to watch out there, Ben. Your classism shown a little bit. Anyway, speaking of classism, Ben... Um. This is a critique of modern day America, isn't it? Tis indeed, Michael, tis indeed. This has January 6th vibes all the way across the aisle. At the end of the last season there, we saw that Starlight split away from the old Seven and it's kind of striking out on her own against the Homelander. And uh, we see it very much portrayed there in the opening scenes of the trailer that we have, you know, Team Starlight and Team Homelander. And I think it's probably a commentary on how polarising politics and particularly american politics the the two-party system the my man is is a sports team and i'll back him no matter what is really on full display there go on well as you've said many a time yourself michael that modern day politics tends to require an awful lot of the people that support it that is to say that they they are required to take more and more extreme stances as situations escalate as circumstances become a bit more dire um, or as either side perceives more of an attack from the other. Yeah, 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 that is one of my stances. But how we're going to see that in the boys, obviously, isn't through a heightened lens for comedic effect. So they're going to take the really realistic violence that can erupt from that clash of ideals. Here it's going to take the form of superheroes beating the snot out of each other. 
<laughs> we love when his son's murdering everyone. I mean, as usual, it's on full display in the trailer. He, he murders the shit out of that man. He just throws him in a building. Yep. He just cleaves him straight through that building. No, he doesn't strike him through a building, Ben. You must have watched this in low resolution. He splatters on the building. Oh, yeah, because buildings are actually built to withstand human projectiles. And humans are not built to withstand being projectiles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because humans, not that uh, solid, as it turns out. They do not hold their shape at high velocity. No, they just... It's splatter. Ugh, gross. But look, there's lots of character stuff going on because we saw Black Noir get killed last season. Yeah, so Black Noir has definitely been replaced just in the grand corporate scheme of things. Where it gets really interesting, though, is who he's been replaced by. So initially I thought it might have been Jeffrey Dean Morgan. I thought that he might eventually become the boy's man on the inside. Do you know what I mean? He's a soup who... Doesn't really want to use his powers, but he will give the boys a dig out by being their mole on the inside. But to be honest, I don't really think that would be the best use of his character. So I'd be curious to see um, what becomes that and, and who takes over the mantle of Blackmore. Don't know. Don't know. And who's this new red-headed lady, Ben? So I think with Homelander, we're probably going to see a big lean into the alt-right thing because that is where he is finding his success. It's definitely where he found it at the end of the last year because they were so delighted that he inflicts that massive wave of violence on that innocent bystander and basically lasers him out of existence. So he's obviously going to lean into that quite heavily and... Um, I think we're going to see him just appeal to the red, white and blue, the Bible belt, you know, the what is essentially Trump country today is going to be Homelander country within the show. <laughs> and I think that redheaded lady is an appeal to the gun toting, Jesus loving barbecue having Americans of the deep south. You know, I think she's it's it's going to be NASCAR country rallies as far as the eye can see. In terms of other characters that are going to have arcs, I would love to know who the woman giving the the speech about the Roman Empire and the Greeks is. Again, another divergence from the comic books. I would have thought that that might be a nod to the legend from the comics, but we've already seen that person played, I think, on screen. So it's probably not them, but I, I would be very interested to know who they are. And then, of course, we got a little glimpse of the consequences of Victoria's hubris. Um, we saw the little tentacle-mouthed child. No. Oh, is that her child? That's certainly who I thought it was. Oh, no. Tentacles coming out of her mouth. Maybe Victoria should have played it safe and left it well enough alone. Yeah. Oh, look. You thought she was going to get cool mind powers, but instead, aliens. And no doubt we'll see that on a fake news anti-vax website within a week of it airing with loads of people going, see, this is what vaccines do. Coming out of her mouth because of the vaccine. But your look, Benjamin, we'll watch it. I didn't get through all of um, the boys go to college or whatever that was called. Envy. Gen V. I didn't get through it all. Well, you're going to have to hurry up and get on it, Michael, because we just got our next The Boys spin-off announced, and it's The Boys Mexico. Oh, El Nino? Precisely, Michael. Spot on. We'll probably see a whole rake of European-adopted ones coming up soon with lots of multilingual ones like Bambini. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Nagasuri here in Ireland. Very good, yeah. What sort of characters would they have they'd have on Sean Vore? <laughs> yeah, me and my team would be there. On the front lines. It'd be great old 
times all together, Michael. Speaking of great old times, though, Ben. Go on. The Christmas tree is up, the lights are twinkling, and there's a festive feeling in the air. It's absolutely brutal. Oh, God. What? It is. <laughs> oh, God, Ben. Just just fake it a bit more. Fake it, please, Ben. Fake it a bit more. For Christmas, Ben. Oh, yeah. Christmas. Mad for Christmas, Ben. Do you remember when you were a child? Remember when you were a child in Ireland in the 80s and Santa Claus didn't bring you an Optimus Prime? No, Michael, because I wasn't born in the 80s. I was born in the 90s. You're projecting again. That's your villain origin story. That is my villain origin story. Ah, look, Michael, I'm just I'm just feeling a bit down because I'll be honest with you. I, I really feel like I let myself down earlier, right? My classes side did show. <laughs> And you might have been a bit on the money. All I was saying, Ben, was that your Josephine character didn't have to be from the flats. It could be from anywhere. Yeah, I really let myself down there. Yeah, you let yourself down. You let you let the side down. Yeah. Not the side. Yeah, yeah. All day, every day, you're letting me down. Ah, well, in fairness, it's been seven long years of letting you down. Anyway, Michael. Go on. It's the Christmas season. Okay, lovely. And I decided, in the spirit of that lovely season, that we'd pick off our December 2023 with a little look at Santa, that icon of consumerism. But more importantly, Michael, we take a look at all the twisted little versions of them that have sprung into existence over the years. Because let me tell you, Michael, it wasn't always such a jolly holly St. Nick. Let me tell you that. So I'm going to take you on a little trip, Michael, and we're going to look at the dark and seedy past of one Santa Claus. Are you ready? Okay. I'm ready. So, Michael, to kick us off here, I thought we'd play a classic podcast game. Oh, fabulous. I am going to describe a scenario to you, and I'm going to be as objective as I can about it. And I want you to give me your honest emotional reaction to it at the end. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. So every year, Michael, there is an annual event. And on that annual event, everyone has to go to bed and close their eyes. Okay. And then, a supernatural entity is going to travel around the globe in a single night. Oh, wow. In the process of doing that travel, he will enter into every single home with a child in it. Oh. Will he knock? No. Will he enter through the door? No. Will he choose a window? God, no. Instead, he'll chuck himself down your chimney. And once he's broken and entered into your home, he will judge you. He'll eat your food and judge you. Uh -oh. This entity has a very specific set of criteria oh. that nobody knows. If you are good or nice, you'll get good things. And if you're bad, then you just get oral. Or else what? Once he's judged you and deemed you to be one way or the other, on his naughty or nice list, the arbitrary set of rules and criteria which only he knows, he'll give you gifts. Oh, okay. Whew. How did you feel about that, Michael? Oh, it was pretty terrifying there up until, like, up, and, up until the final decision is presence or not. When I thought I might be getting shot or something, it was pretty spooky. Yeah, so you see, uh, deep down, everyone is uh, actually pretty scared of Santa Claus after all, let's take a look at where we get the big jolly red menace from. So it would be fair to say that Santa Claus is a pretty major pop culture figure 
at this point. Yeah. It is hard to get around to Christmas time every year without seeing some reference to the big man himself, the jolly round fat fella that brings us all presents, Santa Claus. But when we look at that kind of character, there are two major Western influences that have shaped him into who we know today. Okay. The very modern version of this guy is formed in the red suit with the round belly and the cheery face and all that from something that we all know quite well, which is a famous poem by Clement Clark Moore. And the name of the poem is An Account of a Visit from St. Nicholas. Uh, but it's probably known by its more popular name. Twas the night before Christmas. Oh, and all through the house, nothing was stirring, not even a grouse. Now, you'll have just heard me say St. Nicholas there. And he is the other major influence on the character today. However, it's more from a religious aspect than a physical aspect because St. Nicholas was usually depicted as a very tall, thin man with a beard. He was a monk, um, and he was a monk that was born near Myra in modern-day Turkey in around 280 AD, or Common Era, I think? CE? If you're of a more secular persuasion. Ben, does Anodominus not mean dominate the anus? Yeah, that's exactly what it means, Michael. Uh, that's That's precisely what it means yeah they just the catholic church just doesn't want anybody finding out about that so that's why they've acronymed it to ad they don't want doing it is what you're saying but they do but they don't want people to find out very good okay well i mean the catholic church don't have a leg to stand on so all right carry on so anyway saint nick is pretty popular in turkey where he's from and he gave away all his wealth and helped the poor and the sick for many, many, many years. Um, and then his popularity spread and he became known as a protector of children and sailors. So old St. Nick, the dirty sailor. Um, his feast day was on December 6th uh, and was a significant day of festivities and activities like marriages and making large purchases. All right. Ooh, foreshadowing. Chekhov's large purpose in this particular case. Cool. Now, as Christianity spread and we began to amalgamate dates on the calendar with more Christian dates to align everything and make the transition from paganism to Christianity more frictionless, as it were, St. Nicholas became associated with December 25th, which was also associated with Jesus' Jesus's birthday. So, how did we make the jump from St. Nicholas to Santa Claus? Well, you can already kind of hear it in the name there but the major shift came from a dutch influence um christianity was hugely influential in dutch culture and they obviously used their own language dutch um to refer to the man himself so in their language it's sinterklaas or sinterklaas if you want to be more accurate and that eventually became anglicised into Santa Claus, um, particularly popular among Americans uh, because of the huge Dutch immigrant influence on their culture, the great melting pot of the United States. Then, slowly over time, as with all modern pop culture representations of things, he became heavily influenced by the Victorians. Oh, the old Victorians, they're at it again. Firstly, in the place of the poem by Clements, and 
second major influence being Charles Dickens' Ghost of Christmas Present, um, the great gift giver and bringer of opulence to um, the Christmas season in Victorian London. From there, we get to see the kind of traditional introduction of gifts for the good kids, coal for the bad kids, which still sort of persists today, but has faded out a little bit. Now we kind of just look at Christmas as a time of gifts and the punishment angle is a little bit lost to us. Have you ever met someone who got a bit of coal? No, never. I think it's a hoax. Yeah, I don't know if it's ever actually actually happened. Sure, everybody gets presents these days, Michael. I used to spend all year round being the best boy I could be. And then all the little shitheads in my estate would still get gifts as well. Absolute horseshit. It's it's a false meritocracy, Michael. Everyone gets a present just for participation. It's PC culture gone mad, Ben. Little Jimmy's out there going around purposely giving people HIV AIDS. And he's still got presents. He didn't even get a lump of coal. Absolute horseshit, Michael. But I have to say, it wasn't always like that. Um, we do actually have... Uh, much more hefty consequence to being a bad child in more traditional folkloric renderings of Santa Claus. So he wasn't always the big jolly figure that we see. He did always protect good children. So that's very important. He really didn't protect the bad children. And the question you might have is protect them from what? What? And that is where we meet our old friend who we've talked about before, Krampus. Oh, the Christmas Grinch. What's he up to? Now, Krampus is a Germanic folklore originating creature and he's absolutely terrifying. He's an eight foot tall, black haired goat creature, like a were-goat, if you wanted to think of it that way. Um, he has a huge elongated tongue. And he looks like the devil. Um, and he has a very special sack, Michael. Cool. And in his sack is not presents or coal, but children, specifically naughty children who didn't behave. He'd throw them into his sack and then take them back to his cave and whip them. Whip them real good. <laughs> so basically over the years, Michael, they would uh, divide and conquer. You didn't have that extreme capitalist work ethic of doing all the houses yourself in one night and doing good and bad children at the same time for Santa Claus, Santa Claus had a helper. Uh, only his helper was absolutely fucking terrifying. Um, a real vision of nightmares. Oh, good lad. Benjamin, it's a good division of labour, isn't it, they have there? I'll do it. I'll whip any number of children for you. Yeah, I mean, essentially... Santa just goes ahead and outsources the punishment of children. Look, I'll just outsource it to you and you deal with it whatever moral way you feel is right, Krampus. Because as we know, Michael, outsourcing your business elsewhere is always the most morally solid thing you can do in business. Yeah, yeah, very good, very good. Benjamin, I suppose what you're saying really is that the, the real criminal is late-stage capitalism. You know, Michael... You could say that. You could almost say that. And there it is, ladies and gentlemen. You can now reach for your festive shot of brandy and knock it back. Ben has mentioned late stage capitalism. Get it into you, Cynthia. Knock it down. Knock it down. <laughs> so I suppose in a, in a way you could look at the emergence of the twisted kind of evil Santa Claus archetype as stemming from three specific places. Oh, go on. Firstly, 
Santa has always had a dark side associated with him, even if it was an external one in the form of the Krampus. Secondly, there is the, certainly in more modern narratives from the 1970s onwards, there is the awareness that Christmas is becoming an increasingly consumerist, hyper-capitalist holiday, and that the symbol of Santa that was once kind and and good is now just a means of selling things to people. And I suppose that sinister quality is is probably being made aware to people or probably leaking out of the the mascot in itself. And then the third form is actually a little bit of psychology. It comes in the form of looking at how children perceive Santa Claus. Now, don't get me wrong, most children love Santa Claus. There are always, when you go to visit Santa at the shopping centre, there are always children or one child who's absolutely terrified of him. And there have been a few kind of studies into this and, and why it happens. And one very key psychologist who wrote about this is a woman called Emma Citron. And she said that the fear of Santa is akin to the common fear of clowns, both of whom convey an expression of permanent, you know, jovialness and jollity that might seem forced or unreliable. And humans are very emotional beings. That's not the fear of clowns. The fear of clowns is, look at this murderous creep. You know, it, it really ties in with that concept of the uncanny valley. If we see a person in a permanent state of extreme happiness, we become very wary of that person because it doesn't feel right. It's not, you're not supposed to be in this manic state of happiness constantly. I suppose you could almost align it over to the Joker. Now, that to me feels a bit of a stretch. So I've decided for today to focus on the other two, the uh, dark side of Santa and the strange kind of counter-capitalist space that Twisted Santa archetypes take up. And we put it out to the listeners as well. So we got lots of suggestions. I should probably point out as well, Michael, that the, the fear of the constantly jovial creature and capitalism kind of overlap in a very modern American malaise that's seeped into Irish society, which is the elf on the shelf. Yes, along with far right and far left extremism. <laughs> Blind Boy did a really interesting episode on his podcast a couple of years ago where he talked about how the elf on the shelf basically created a kind of Christmas surveillance capitalist state for parents where parents would weaponize this never blinking, constantly smiling vision of torture um, and say that it knew what the the children were doing. And um, then it launched a secondary trend where parents would play pranks on behalf of the elf and upset their children. And then other times they would say that the the elf told them that the child had misbehaved and the child would find themselves in this perilous state of, no, I told the truth. I didn't do anything wrong. And that harks back to that kind of arbitrary rightness and wrongness that Santa seems to bring about. Parents have been doing that as long as they're parents. It's like, Benjamin, that's the, that's the same as like, when you take your unruly children to the supermarket and you say, look, the man is looking now. Have you ever actually been the man? Benjamin, look at me, Benjamin. I have never not been the man. Sometimes parents come and find me and say, would you just, would you just glance at my child, my, my poorly behaving child there, just for a second, just look at him with an angry face for me. And I go, yeah, yeah, no worries. Yeah, look, you've upset the man. And the man is there in his pyjama bottoms going, what? 
I was having some late afternoon breakfast. So it was very interesting to see that brought about again um, in the form of Elf on the Shelf, which are hideous little creatures, Michael. Remember those riots a few weeks ago? That was because of the Elf on the Shelf and its effect on a generation. So anyway, I thought I would get the ball rolling on our twisted Santa slideshow uh, by telling you all about the one that has seared itself into my brain since I saw it about two or three years ago. This comes from Love, Death and Robots Season 2, and it's called All Through the House. It's an animated short that features not anything approaching a traditional kind of Santa, but a strange Cthulhu eldritch beast of Santa, which in some ways is perfect because he is a folkloric creation. Yes, I have a memory of this, Benjamin. This is some sort of creepy spindly yoke. Exactly. It's a fantastic short and it centres around Leah and Billy as they engage in that most timeless of sibling activities and that is waiting up and trying to catch Santa in the act of delivering presents. Oh, a classic. But they get way more than they bargain for in this one. So... They do exactly that. They are waiting up in their room and they hear a rustling downstairs and they rush down to try and catch a glimpse of Santa and what they find instead is the Santa Beast. And he is absolutely terrifying. He has no eyes. He is a sack-like creature with huge appendages that ship him around the place. Um, And unfortunately for Leah and Billy, they are caught by Santa Claus. Um. And he then engages in the very primal act of assessing them for their virtue, their naughty or niceness. Um, and he does so through a sniffing test. So this is a completely alien concept. He backs these two poor children into a corner and they are dying of fear um, in the face of this horrific beast. And he assesses them. And luckily for them, he deems them to be good, but there's a touch and go moment where we're not sure if Leah is going to pass the test. But both children do. They're deemed good by this entity that is Santa Claus. Yay! Then one of the most disgusting gift giving mechanics I've ever seen takes place. And he basically regurgitates two gifts. Um and they are slimy and covered in his mucus and he vomits them out of his mouth and hands them to them. Fantastic. Then he departs with a very sinister phrase, which is be good. And he kind of utters this phrase in a guttural kind of from a mouth that isn't made for human speech, if you want to put it that way. And yeah, I mean, it's just, it's jarring stuff, you know? And then of course, um, we get a wonderful end scene where Leah and Billy go back up to their room and they are understandably shocked and kind of rocked by this experience. And the closing line is one of the best. It, Billy is sitting there staring at the ceiling and a very simple question comes to him and he says, what would he have done if we were bad? And it just hangs there in the air. The, the short is phenomenal. It's very well paced. The tension is exquisite. And he's this weird Cthulhu Santa is a great twist on the folklore that the archetype comes from, but also the 
horror of consumerism in a strange eldritch form it's unreal fabulous but he does give them gifts that's the thing that's my favourite twist of that is that he is just a gift giving Santa but enough for me Michael what did you watch for our fun and twisted Santa affair Benjamin I watched the other day one of my favourite now Christmas traditions I watched Violent Night from just last year oh Violent Night <laughs> You don't remember the tune of Silent Night, obviously. Violent night, holy night. There you go. Very good. Benjamin, Violent Night is the 2022 film starring living Santa Claus David Harbour. Who else would you want to play Santa Claus other than David Harbour? He's the perfect casting. But in this Santa Claus, Benjamin, this he's ended up in a... He's not an evil Santa Claus, but he is a kind of grim take on Santa Claus because he's he's ended up in a die-hard style situation where a horrible family, their mansion has been taken over by terrorists, by criminals, uh, by hostages, and they're trying to break into the vault and so on. It's all very die-hard. John Luguizamo's there and he hates Christmas. And he's hired an international crew of criminals who all hate Christmas and have dressed up in Christmas-themed outfits and taken on Christmas-themed codenames like Scrooge and Candy Cane and Krampus. Absolutely fabulous. And wouldn't you know it, they happen to attack this house just when Santa Claus is there delivering the presents. Big mistake, Michael. And Santa Claus... Big mistake, Benjamin, because Santa Claus, as it turns out, has gotten a bit disgruntled with late stage capitalism. And he says that what used to bring him joy was the look on the children's faces. But now the joy only lasts two seconds and then they want to unwrap the next thing and they want the next gift and they're never thankful and they're never thoughtful. So it turns out that there's one little girl who's innocent and lovely that's part of the family. And she believes in Santa. That convinces him to stay and help out. And wouldn't you know it, Ben, that this Santa stretches back through history to the ancient Norse origins of Santa Claus. And it turns out that this version of Santa Claus, Benjamin, used to be a Viking warrior known as Nicholas the Red. And he used to take from people but then he learned his lesson and decided that he was going to give but I bet you what I bet you one thing if you don't like Christmas and you're threatening a little girl who does like Christmas then Nicholas the Red is going to come back out and he's going to find a sledgehammer that reminds him of his old hammer skull splitter phenomenal name for a hammer yeah and he's going to absolutely go mental and take out some criminals it is quite good yeah it's very violent David Harbour David Harper is great in it. He plays a very good, convincing, disgruntled Santa and action man dad character. John Luisiamo hates Christmas and he's having a great time. It's actually a good, fun Christmas comedy movie. And the flashback scenes where we learn about Nicholas the Red and his, his history and his pathos add a bit of a little bit of mythology to it is it as good as that scene from the trailer of Godzilla vs Kong where the two bros team up and run towards the camera together no it's not but maybe he'll be in the sequel how could it be Ben maybe in the sequel though he'll be there as well he also has that very kind of classic disgruntled Santa Claus feel um, that was made so popular in the 70s David Harbour's like really angry really disgruntled I suppose it was made famous in a couple of different ways we had Billy Bob Thornton in Bad Santa. That was pointed out to us by my good lady friend, 
on the Discord. Hop up on it if you're not on it already. Um, with this idea of, of the kind of sloppy, disgruntled Santa. Um, but David Harbour also encompasses that great sense of menace as well that became really popular in the 70s. And um, there are so many 70s twisted slasher movies. Mm. 70s was mad for like any sort of slasher dressed as any sort of thing yeah exactly they'd take anything that was a seasonal mascot and they'd turn it into a sinister pastiche of itself you know but we got a a rake of films not unlike violent night that are puns on christmas carols and things like that some of the the biggest classics of that genre are silent night deadly night about a young orphan named billy who's traumatized when he's younger he goes on to become a a kind of serial killer in his own right and targets people who are particularly filled with the holiday spirit. Oh yeah. Um and that got a sequel that was equally as kitsch. And and these kinds of slashers became bog standard throughout the nineteen seventies and eighties. Um and kind of just bulldozed their way into popular culture in that way so i suppose the roots of that coincided with capitalist awareness the the golden age of the 1950s ending and and the commercialism of christmas beginning to take root yeah 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 yeah. anyway we did try and put this out to our wonderful wonderful listeners but unfortunately i was a little bit slow on the uptake today and didn't manage to get out in time. However, some of our faithful few managed to get them to us. Um, Nyan Wassies got in touch with us and said that the most evil Santa he ever encountered was the one that failed to deliver me the Millennium Falcon two years in a row. That fucker. That was uh, Santa Claus in Ireland in the 80s, Ben. Not the most reliable. Like, it was a hard time economically. So, you know, it must have been hard to be Santa Claus in Ireland in the 1980s, but... Didn't get nine wassies that Millennium Falcon. He didn't get me a bloody Optimus Prime. Real bad. I suppose, though, he didn't put us in a sack and then drag us off to be whipped. My good lady friend and uh, fellow Discordee got in touch and said, I very much enjoy Billy Bob Thornton in Bad Santa, although appreciate he's maybe not pure evil. I think pure ruthless is as useful for these particular narratives as pure evil. So that's in with a win. We had some phenomenal suggestions up on Instagram from good friend of the podcast, uh, Dr. Stephen J. Cadwell. He wrote to us saying that the Futurama robot one was an excellent example of the evil Santa Claus trope. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to be featured on this podcast, if you would like your opinion on various pop culture topics heard, you can get in touch with us in a few different ways find us on the interwebs at www.shomrabeag.com s-e-o-m-r-a-b-e-a-g.com it means big nose in irish you can also find us at our acast website www.shalukshalismpodcast.acast.com you can indeed it's always up to date we are on instagram at shalukshalismpodcast we are on tiktok at shalukshalism but the best way to get in touch with us ladies and gentlemen is to hop up on that discord at the link in the description ladies and gentlemen thank you so much for listening you can join us in a week's time where we'll be taking a look at all things christmas 
TV special related. Send us in your favourites at the places we just mentioned. Mm. What are you having? What are you having? Tell us. Bye. See you next week. Bye. Merry Christmas. Bye. Merry Christmas.